0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio.
1: And online at SBNationLive.com.
0: From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. This is one of my favorite weeks, and not because it's International
1: Laugh at Work Week, which it is, you can look oh, it better, have a good time, guys. But because the Masters is going on in Augusta. I'm not a big golf fan, and I don't play. Play, but I absolutely love, and I mean, love watching this tournament, mostly because it's warm and green there. Well, it's cold and snowy here in the Northeast. Just as it's snowy, we had five more inches Monday. That's the good part of the Masters. The bad, of course, is that I'm jealous of anyone who's there, and our Ron Borges is. Hey, Ron, I hate you.
2: Yep. <laughs> yeah,
3: a lot of people do. Uh, yeah, I'm down here for my 10th <laughs> Masters. The, uh Got held up uh, in the snow, taken out of, uh, taken off from Boston. When I landed in Atlanta, it was eighty degrees, so it's uh, oh. pretty good. Everything's flowering. The course is in perfect shape. Tiger Woods is back. Everything is right with the world of golf.
1: Gooseman, everything right with you? You ever cover the Masters, or you ever just want to walk the course, maybe just once?
4: No, I never covered it. Never been to Augusta. Never seen the magnolias, but it does remain on the bucket list for me.
1: Well, Goose, what, So, what is the biggest golf tournament you've been to, or, or covered?
4: I covered the 1972 PGA Championship at Oakland Hills. Gary Player won it with a brilliant 9-iron over a willow tree on 16. He called it, quote, the greatest shot I have ever hit. I also covered the 82 PGA at Southern Hills. Raymond Floyd won that one, but it wasn't nearly as memorable as uh, the player shot in the championship.
1: Was the player shot a bigger shot than Bobby
3: Thompson's? Mm
4: -hmm. Yep. (laughs) Shot (laughs) all
3: the way back to South Africa where Gary (laughs) is from. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I, you know, I, I think mine was a miniature golf term in Booth Bay Harbor, Ron, uh, in Maine. And you know what? Don't knock it. can never get enough of a putt but Anyway, uh, congratulations, Ron, on escaping the weather. And you know what? Do us a favor, if you would. Could you bring back some green jackets for Goose and me, please?
3: Well, I'll tell you what. I saw my great and good friend Lynn Swan today in his green jacket, so I'll ask him tomorrow if he's got a couple extras.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much. A, uh, no green jackets <laughs> here today, but we do have Hall of Famer Dan Fouts to talk about his upcoming appearance at the Keith Jackson Rose Bowl Memorial. We also have Patriots defensive back Devin McCourty to address the Riesling Forum Players Coalition. And we'll check in with Hall of Fame voter Shereen Williams on the best Cowboys not, and I said not in Canton, as well as NFL historian John Turney on the recent NFL rules changes. So there's a lot to get to, and we will right after this. You'll listen to the Talk of Fame Network.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, before we get started here, a couple
1: of news items this week. First of all, Hall of Famer and friend of the show, Jim Kelly. Underwent a 12-hour surgery to reconstruct his upper jaw and is expected to be hospitalized at least, my understanding, for two weeks. Uh, Goose sounds like the surgery was successful, and I tell you, you and I saw him in Houston at the Super Bowl. We can only hope it's successful. Great guy, great quarterback.
4: Yeah, Clark, yeah. Kelly had the will to beat cancer once, and he'll have the will to beat it again. You know, toughness was his trump card as an NFL quarterback.
1: Yeah, I, I hope he does. He just keeps beating it again and again. We we're really with him here. But there's a similar story. Um, Hall of Famer and also friend of the show, Chris Doman. I covered him. Goose, you know him. He's out of the hospital after undergoing surgery to remove um, some tissue for brain cancer. And it's the same cancer that Senator John McCain has. And, and he's walking again. And I'm talking about Chris Doman. He's walking again and says he feels great. But, Ron, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, like Jim Kelly, he has a long and difficult road ahead of him. But the good news is he's also got a lot of people pulling
3: for him. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, Chris Dolman was a great guy, was a great player. Um, You know, let's not uh, have anybody kid themselves about, you know, just when you just hear brain cancer, you know, you know, you're you're talking about a long and and tough uh, fight. Uh, But certainly if there's any guy who was a fighter, it was Chris Dolman. And and, uh, we certainly, uh, you know, hope that he can win this battle.
1: Yeah, yeah, well, uh, both are tough stories, and, and as Goose mentioned, both, and you mentioned, both are tough guys. Uh, we want to wish him, of course, the speedest of recoveries, and, and hope to hear them again and soon on this show. Okay, guys, on to the news. Ron, I want to start with you. They keep reading about Rob Gronkowski and how he might be traded. Oh, doesn't like the Patriots' way. Wait, no, he was traded. No, actually, wasn't. Isn't fond of Bill Belichick, or what? Bill Belichick isn't fond of Bill I forgot. I'm so mixed up here. Um, Ron, what's real? What's imagined? And where is Gronk on week one of this coming season?
3: Well, I'll be surprised if he's not um, uh, in Foxborough. And, and frankly, if he isn't, Tom Brady may not be there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. No thanks. Uh, you know, um, having said that, I think, you know, he's an older player now. When I say an older player, I mean, he's a more mature guy, uh, uh, in some ways, although mature might not be the right word, uh, but he's been around a while, put it that way. And, uh, you know, it's, it's tougher and tougher to work under the Bill Belichick uh, system. Uh, you know, the, the older you get and the, and the you know, you, it's harder to put up with some of the things that Belichick uh, does and seems to feel are important. Uh, uh, Teddy Bruschi was explaining this week that it's not so much the criticism of your play calling you out and trying to embarrass you in front of the team, but, you know, the people sort of accept that, but it seems like it's kind of bled now into how he's going to train his body and who's going to do the training. Mm-hmm. He's become yeah. a disciple of uh, uh, Guerrero, who's uh, Tom Brady's guy, and apparently this has begun to chafe uh, Bill Belichick. Well, when you start telling guys who they can train with, or at least implying that you don't want them uh, going f- further than implying that, I-, I think that begins to say, wait a minute, you, you-, you think you got to rule like every part of my life? You're not. Uh, I'm a grown man. And the second problem is, for for Gronk, I think, it's just he's taking a physical pounding. And, uh, you know, when he said what he said right after the Super Bowl, I think it was a lot like I've seen a lot of boxers right after a boxing match. People want to ask him who they want to fight next. I don't want to fight anybody. You know, (laughs) I don't even want to be in a pillow fight. (laughs) So they say they're thinking of retiring. But in the end, I think Gronk will be back.
1: Hey, hey, Gooseman, I I don't know where these trade rumors come from, but they're everywhere. Um, But I'll be honest with you. I I think it'd be lunacy to trade this guy. but. As a historian, you know. I mean, Belichick's done it before. He got rid of Randy Moss. He got rid of Super Bowl MVP Deion Branch. So at least there is precedent here.
4: Go way back, and Belichick also got rid of Pro Bowl safety Lawyer Malloy after winning his first Super Bowl. You know, mm-hmm. in, in a salary cap world, though, teams have to learn how to say good, goodbye to players, and Belichick could teach that class.
1: Well, like I said there's precedent with the Patriots, guys. I'm not so sure. There is precedent for what former UCLA coach Jim Mora just said about his quarterback, and that's Josh Rosen, who his former quarterback. Goose, um, it's one thing to waver on a guy, but to say the quarterback for your arch rival, in this case Sam Darnold of USC, should be taken first ahead of your quarterback. And I know he said it's all about the fit, the proper fit, but man, I mean, it didn't help Rosen with Mora's comments about millennials and, and also saying Rosen tends to get bored.
4: Boy, that's tough. That's a tough word to overcome. Yeah, that's tough for for a guy who coached the player to say those things. But I I, I think, you know, I've read he's been backpedaling. He looks like Deion Sanders now with the (laughs) backpedal in this thing. And I think uh, he's trying to spin it now that uh, he'd rather have Rosen playing his career in New York than in Cleveland. But the bottom line, what he said is going to sting in draft rooms.
3: Yeah, yeah I mean, was, you know, guys. I mean, that, that thing cracked me up. Not so much what he said, Clark, but then they come out and say, uh, you know, well, I, you know, I wasn't being critical. You know, right. well, what were you right. be in? If that's not critical, what do you say when you're critical? <laughs> <laughs> you yeah, well, do you back up and hit him with a bus. I mean, first crow. Yeah, I mean, that and,
1: and this is the guy who coached him, I and mean, this is the guy was supposed to be in this corner. Um, you know, it's it's not like you know what Pete Carroll said about Mark Sanchez. He just said he's not ready. This is different. And and Ron, if you were if you were someone interested in Rosen, you're the Jets, or you're someone interested in Rosen. How much damage would Mora's comments have done to you?
3: Well, I think it would depend on how much I like the player. You know, I mean, right. To me, you got to let the film tell you, not the coach. Because I would look at Moore as sort of maybe the spurned lover a little bit. You know, he got fired. Maybe playing Rosen a little bit for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rosen missed a couple games uh, last season and didn't play well in uh, one or two other games. So, you know, maybe uh, uh, his vision is a little clouded by that. So I would go by what the tape tells me. Now, if the tape didn't satisfy me, well, then I might uh, lean toward uh, what Moore has to say. Having said that, I might look at Jim Moore's uh, track record as a head coach and decide, man, maybe I won't listen to him quite so much. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
4: All rise,
1: here comes the judge. Well, I'm not talking about a quarterback here. I'm talking about a wide receiver and a really, really good one, and that's former Detroit line Calvin Johnson, a.k.a. Megatron, whom I wrote about on our website this week, Talk of Fame Network, and who I believe is Hall of Fame worthy, even though he's not up for Canton until 2021. It seems like a long ways away, but actually it's really not. Anyway, Calvin Johnson touched most of the bases. As you know, he was a four-time All-Pro, six-time Pro Bowler, set a zillion records, including the most yards receiving in one season. He broke Jerry Rice's mark, almost made 2,000 that year. And he tied Michael Irvin's record for most 100-yard games in one one year, and that was 11. Rice and Irvin are both in the hall. Calvin Johnson will be guaranteed. Now, he does have his critics, including Hall of Famer Lynn Swann. They say, well, you know what, he didn't play long enough. Last time I checked, guys, he played two more years than Terrell Davis and three more than Kenny Easley. And unlike those two... He was productive in every season he played. Davis and Easley are in the hall. Calvin Johnson will be. Guaranteed. I also hear people knocking him for never getting to the Super Bowl and barely making it to the playoffs as if, well, as if he were coaching the team. You know what, guys? Maybe he should have. Maybe they would have won some. All I know is that the two times they did make it to the playoffs while he was with a sorry franchise. Goose, I said sorry. Detroit Lions, sorry franchise. He had 17 catches for 296 yards, or an average of 148 yards per game. And he also had, as I mentioned, two TDs, or the same number of TDs that Hall of Famer Marvin Harrison had in 16 playoff games. I'll be honest, I don't know if there was a more dynamic receiver while he played. I'd take him over Terrell Owens, I'd probably take him over Randy Moss, mostly because Calvin Johnson played when he had to play. There's also this, while he played, his stats measure up to both those guys but he didn't bring the drama they did to the locker room. Calvin Johnson belongs in the Hall of Fame, and he will be, guaranteed. The only question is, Goose, when?
4: And that's a question, Clark. Is Calvin Johnson merely a Hall of Famer in your mind, or a first ballot Hall of Famer?
1: Well, normally I'd say he's a Hall of Famer, but I'll be honest with you, Goose, I don't know anymore. I mean, we just put in two wide receivers in the same year including a first ballot choice who admitted he played when he wanted to play, not when he had to play. I I thought that would hurt him, but we put him in. It didn't hurt him. I don't think Calvin Johnson makes it on the first ballot, but I'd be stunned if he weren't in within
3: his first three years. (laughs) You guys are. I mean, Mama Leone is now a first ballot. Hall of Famer. I mean, it's it's freaking ridiculous. But, um, uh, you know, my problem with with this guy, Clark, is is, uh, – as dominating as he was. It's just hard to look at their playoff situation and just say, wasn't there more he could have done? Especially on the last couple of years, he seemed to, Yeah, I mean, he faded. Well, actually, he actually didn't really fade that much in terms of production, but I don't know. I just, I never watched him and felt, boy, there's a, Hall of Fame receiver. Boy, I did. I felt more more that
1: he could have done? 2,000 yards in one year? I mean, no, there isn't any more. He could have. He's one guy. You know, he's the 22 guys on the field. Anyway, um, I, we got to go. I, maybe, Ron, I just like the guy because he has the right so initials. They threw
3: him in 200 C- passes. Deeper yeah. throw. I mean, I would, they threw it, like it to him he's a, <laughs> he's a great receiver.
1: He's a great receiver. Anyway, you have the right initials, too, CJ. Hey, uh, what I do know now, guys, is we're, we're going to go to break, but when we return, we're going to hear from NFL historian John Turney. This is the Talk of Fame Network.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. There was a lot of talk about rules changes and, and player
1: changes at last week's NFL owners meetings, with nothing gaining more attention, and rightly so, than the new tackling by helmet rule. Uh, it, it's such a dramatic change to the game that one NFL writer, national writer, said the league as he knew it is gone. Now I, I don't know about that. So we've invited league historian, good friend of ours, John Turney, of Pro Football Journal, here to address it. So, John, first question: Is the league, as you know it, gone? If they're
5: able to enforce this rule, which I'm not sure they're going to be able to, then yeah, I think so. Sometimes when they make changes in the league, at some point there becomes a point of diminishing returns. It's just a principle that applies in sports and business and almost anything in life. Certainly the league was rough and tumble in the early years. You could you could uh, tackle a guy by his head, you could go low, you could go high back in the 30s, the 40s and 50s. And they've they've made good changes, taken away the face mask, taken away the head slap, taken away the the targeting of guys coming across the middle. But at this point, you're fundamentally changing the game because I don't know that there's any way they could enforce this rule. And looking at Mm -hmm. tweets from former players, even receivers like Tim Brown,
1: saying, what are they talking about? You're going to have 55, 60 penalties a game. Yeah, well, that leads to my next question, which is, what becomes the most difficult part of this rule change? Officiating it, teaching it, or enforcing it? I think
5: all three. I mean, I've coached in my pro football a very low level of, of pro football, and we, we tried to teach guys to tackle right and safe, but it's, it's just in, in, in played high school at a very low level as well. It's hard enough to not spear sometimes because sometimes you, your head just naturally drops. It just, it just happens. You don't mean to necessarily do it. In this particular case, they're taking away all options. I don't know what you can do except run up next to a guy, give him a bear hug, and try to wrestle him down.
4: John, I don't know how they're going to enforce it with running backs. The history of the game, they put their heads down and they jam themselves into a pile. They'll be throwing out every running back in the first quarter. Yeah, well, and what do you? How come they never do
5: anything about the uh, the stiff arm rule? I mean, what? Why is it legal for a guy? Nobody can hit anybody else in the face, but if you have the ball in one hand, you're allowed to punch somebody right in the face.
6: Right. Yeah.
5: They don't change that.
3: Hmm. Do we have a problem with that?
5: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always been to watch because Walter Payton and Eric Dickerson and all those guys, Jim Brown would do it. And it was kind of a the classic in-your-face moment. But was it really good for player safety? Was it not hurting people, snapping necks back? To me, that seems more dangerous than just good hard tackling like they're apparently outlawing right now.
3: See, John, well, how about the quarterback diving over? Uh, to get into the end zone, uh, and he hits Ray Lewis in the head, uh, coming the other direction, who they're going to flag. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that one,
5: but a good one, yeah, exactly.
4: John, Saints coach Sean Payton, Doris Rule, says it won't take the physicality out of the game. Do you buy that?
5: No. Um, I think the physicality on the line, of course, will stay. And the defensive linemen who do tremendous things, it's become a hands, even more of a hands game where they're, it MMA moves trying to get to the quarterback all that physicality will stay but at some point you have to get the, the the guy down and 220 230 pound running backs are hard to get down to the ground especially if they have a will to stand up so I think the physicality will be taken out of the game I can't imagine that this is going to stand I really can't it's that dramatic
4: how do we get to this point It wasn't even on the list yeah. on the agenda to be discussed all of a sudden boom they got they've it, it, Dropped a, a new tackling rule on us. Well, a new tackling rule, and it,
5: how far behind is the kickoffs?
4: Yeah. yeah. Be, I,
5: I think kickoffs are going to be outlawed within the next few years. And at that point, I'm not sure I could even be a football fan because
3: right. that's
5: always been part of the game. That was part of what was set up. You know, in, in
3: the early days of Walter Camp and all the rest of those guys, the St. Louis Rams are certainly or L.A. Rams. There, I go. Okay, I moved it back to St. Louis. Uh, the L.A. Rams are certainly making tons of moves, making as much as many headlines as the rules changers. Uh, the latest one, um, swinging a deal to get Brandon Cooks, the, the uh, Patriots' uh, wide receiver of the season. Uh, what are they doing out there, and and what do you see as the sum total of uh, of what they're they're building? Well, I think
5: they're doing what some would call trying to buy a championship. Um, this was tried before, and, it, and it's never worked. Maybe you guys can remember a time. The closest I could come up with was George Allen. The future is now. When 1971, he started trading for older players, and he continued that throughout 1977. Now, they were a very good team but they never got it done in terms of winning the Super Bowl. I think the, the Redskins even tried through free agency to do it once. Uh, I can't remember the year, but remember the, the Eagles tried to bring in all those defensive backs and have that great secondary, and they went, you know, it essentially cost Andy Reid his job. I think oh, there's yeah. some real yeah. questions about whether these are particularly good moves. Can you guys do, and you watched uh, Navakan Sue play, Does he project as a nose tackle in a base defense? In my mind, no.
4: No. Yeah, I wouldn't
1: think so. Yeah. No, absolutely not. And and the Uh, other thing is, you know, John, about that. I mean, they've got Sue, Talib, Marcus Peters on one side of the ball. I mean, those are good players, but they're also potential problems. If that thing goes south, you better have somebody who can handle that locker room.
5: Right, and it takes players, as you guys know, on all three levels. They've got good players up front. They've got the secondary but I don't know if, if you guys could name any of the Rams projected starting linebackers next year. Yeah, no, John, on the flip
4: side, what are, what are the Patriots doing?
5: I have not seen them ever do things like this before. I guess this is going to be the, the ultimate test of whether Belichick's the greatest coach ever because, to me, they're unloading, and I don't think Gronk is going to be there. He'll either retire or they trade trade him. So they're starting from scratch except for the quarterback position. And, of course, they've got a lot of – solid players around, but, boy, to me, they're just, uh, this is a a retooling. They're going from, you know,
3: the Mustang to the Mustang (laughs) Two. Well, you know, what crossed my mind uh, was, you know, if Belchick really wants to get rid of uh, Brady, this is one way to do it. Just get rid of everybody else, and Brady says, you know what, I think I'll retire. I don't want to play with this, you know. No left tackle, no wide receiver. If they give it a Gronk, no, no, tight end. Uh, you know, it's, it's
5: it looks and, pretty and crazy. a Little emergency wide receiver, you know, security blanket in Amendola. I mean,
3: right in Amendola, sure, that's right. I got to tell you, he's not a great. Look, player, at, but he's been a good. You role look at player. Adrian Waddle as your starting left tackle, you get pretty nervous if you're the quarterback. <laughs>
1: Hey, uh John, I, I want to go back to that to some of the rules changes here. Um the the new so called new catch rule, I mean it was a new interpretation of it. You like it? And do you think it's gonna end the controversy?
5: Yeah, I think you have to you know, if we're gonna criticize the, the the tackling rule, you have to compliment them going back to the original catch rule. That way it'll at least end some of these controversies. Some of the obvious ones, the, uh, the Des Bryant one and the Pittsburgh one this last year. Jesse James, It's kind of like the who, meet the old, you know. uh, Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. (laughs) Meet the the new boss, same as the old boss. Meet the new rule, same as
1: the old rule. That's what I was trying to say. (laughs) I love having you quote Pete Townsend. (laughs) Love it.
5: John,
4: John, how would you feel about uh, changing the pass interference rule to 15 yards like the college's?
5: I would hate it because a smart play would be just to interfere if you're beat. And I think it'll slow the game down. I think it'll... uh, it would, just, it, would just, it would just, it was bad when they, I didn't like it when they do it in college. So, no, I don't think it's a very good idea. You need to keep the defensive backs honest. They just need to call it both ways. If there's offensive pass interference, call that. If there's defensive pass interference, call that. But if there's 15-yard penalties and you've got five or six of them in a game, it would drive the fans crazy. It will ruin the flow of the game. It would change the way they play defense. The coaches would just say, hey, don't worry about it. You got beat. Just tackle the guy.
4: John, how about why is the offensive pass interference 15 yards? Why isn't that a 40-yard penalty?
5: Nah, oh, that's you. always been a good question because I've always felt like since about 1994, maybe a year or two earlier, the offense has had way too big of an advantage. We saw what Michael Irvin was able to do and Chris Carter and all the guys with the push-offs on offense. It was right. never a fair Game it was never an equal playing field. I know they did it on probably purpose to increase the passing and increase the popularity of the game. And in that sense, it works beautifully. But as a purist, I never liked it, and it's always bothered me. But so I'm with you. I wish they would call it evenly.
3: <laughs> it's uh, uh, it's interesting to me uh, what's gone on with football uh, in the last few years because I think you're onto something, John. I, I think they have fundamentally change the game now in so many ways that it's going to start turning, it's going to turn a lot of people off. I mean, the, the prolifer- proliferation of offense to the detriment of defense and and now a rule where, it, you know, anybody hits anybody in the head, everybody's going home. You know, I mean, it, it's it, it's just going to be, nah, I mean, you could call that that call, Uh, on every play. Then they go into the Super Bowl and appear to have changed the catch rule before they changed the catch (laughs) rule. I mean, do you (laughs) buy into that, that they actually changed the rule for the Super Bowl but just didn't tell anybody? Well,
5: I'm not as privy to inside information as you guys are. I'm just living in a small town in New Mexico. But all I know is certain calls in that Super Bowl were not consistent with how they were called throughout the rest of the year. Whether there was a conspiracy to get that done, I don't know. But there was a difference in how things were called. And ironically, the Super Bowl calls in my mind were correct calls. They just weren't consistent with what the rule was supposed to be.
3: Right.
1: Right. Hey,
5: John, yeah, they... uh, I'm just
1: living in a small town in uh, Connecticut. <laughs> so anyway, thanks for the time. Always enjoy it. I uh, really appreciate it. Anytime. That was NFL's Story. John Turney of Pro Football Journal. Up next is Hall of Fame quarterback and voter... Damn yeah, fouls. You're listening to the Talk to Pay Network.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Rani Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges.
1: Well, the Rose Bowl on Sunday, April 15th will honor the life of the late and great broadcaster Keith Jackson with a memorial service at the stadium. And one of the featured speakers is our next guest, someone we know well and someone who knew Keith Jackson well. That's former broadcasting partner and Hall of Fame quarterback and voter Dan Fouts, Dan, as always, thanks for joining us.
7: Oh, absolutely! This is—it's uh, quite an honor to be part of the celebration of life for Keith, and uh, really looking forward to it. I hope a lot of people come out because it's—it uh, is open to the public and the press, and no admission at all. And uh, it should be a great afternoon.
1: Well, as you mentioned, Dan, it, it is quite an honor, um, but unfortunately, it's the second time in the last month you've been asked to speak on behalf of a former broadcast partner and giant of the industry who's passed away. He did it with Dick Enberg at Petco Park in San Diego in March, where I remember you told the story of how you and Dick first met. So if you could, I'm wondering if you could tell us how and when you first met Keith Jackson.
7: Well, actually, I met him at an ABC seminar back um, just before he was retired the first time. And uh, I remember... Uh, the room of all the announcers for college football, uh, everybody gave him a standing ovation and everything, and wished him well in his last year. And uh, but you know, Keith wasn't quite ready to go, so he did have the the one year off, and then he decided that he wanted to get back into it. But he wanted to stay closer to home and work on the West Coast doing Pac-10 games. So I was fortunate enough to get uh, switched from Brent Musburger uh, during the season. And uh, Keith and I worked together for a couple of years, so uh, tremendous uh, opportunity. And again, um, you know, you talk about losing two of the, the all-time greats. The thing about losing a guy like Dick Enberg and a guy like Keith Jackson is there will never ever be that type of broadcaster again. It's just the way the industry is now. But they are just so iconic, so versatile, so memorable, uh, and so recognizable when you hear their voice. You put the clicker down, and you just watch, and, yeah. and that's rare these days.
1: Yeah, and you got to work with both of them. I, I remember it, um, at Dick's memorial service, you called him, quote, my mentor, partner, and friend, unquote. How do you remember Keith Jackson?
7: Well, th- those words will be echoed, too, uh, because uh, Keith taught me so much about uh, uh, the preparation part of the game. Because I basically when he re- did retire for the final time, Uh, he pushed me to be uh, the play-by-play announcer in college football doing Pac-10 games. And I did that for two years with Tim Brandt. And uh, the lessons I learned from Keith were very valuable. I wish that uh, he could have taught me a little bit more because it was a great gig for a while. Uh, But the the part about being a friend, uh, it, it was really amazing that in both cases, after working with Dick and after working with Keith, now, both my wife, Jerry, and I became very good friends and, and socialized a great deal with, with uh, Dick's wife, Barbara, and with Keith's wife, Turianne, as well. So uh, the friendship part of it is really uh, what I miss most of all, obviously, because, uh, you know, you work with a lot of different partners over the years. But when you develop a, a deep friendship for not only the, the, the partner, but also his wife, uh, it, it becomes very special.
4: So, Dan, what is your best Keith Jackson story?
7: Well, how much time you got? <laughs> <laughs> you know, there, there's so many. I, I guess, uh, you know, one of the first games I ever did with him, it might have been the first game I did with him, I, I stood there and, and listened to him go through the his opening and go through the starting lineups and go through the first and second play just listening. And he, he looked at me and he said, well, son." Are you going to talk today? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I had to apologize. I said, I, no, I'd rather just listen to you. Are you kidding?
4: <laughs> you you talked about the preparation aspect. of what. What's the most important thing he taught you beyond the preparation?
7: Oh, you know, he, he was so uh, concerned with uh, obviously being exact and being right, but also not... Uh, going overboard, um, an economy of words. Uh, he always wanted to, you know, articulate and educate. And, and if you can, uh, you know, entertain people a little bit. And, you know, you, I can't come up with the big uglies. I can't say, whoa, Nellie, I can't do all these things. But they were natural to him. And that's what made him great. He had this Southern charm uh and he had this discipline of being a a marine uh and and just a, a hard working guy that never refused an assignment
4: what do you miss most about him either either as a partner or as a friend
7: well whenever you lose a friend there's a million things you you uh you, you remember and you miss and um you know i i learned a lot about fine wine from keith <laughs> and you know i <laughs> I wish, uh, you know, after our final game together, the the great 2006 Texas uh, victory over SC in the Rose Bowl for the national title, after the game, he hosted a party in the parking lot under a tent that we had set up for our broadcast team, and he, he brought some of the finest wines that, that you can imagine. And we just sat there under this tent knowing that this was the great Keith Jackson's last broadcast here at the rose bowl and just you know wishing it wasn't true but glad that we were all a part of it
1: mm-hmm. and and they're, Danny, correct me if i'm wrong but they're trying to put together a drive to get a uh, keith jackson statue outside the stadium correct
7: absolutely the rose bowl legacy is is uh fundraising to erect that statue of mm-hmm. of keith and it'll be placed at the stadium and uh you know, there's a beautiful statue uh, right at the entrance there of, of Jackie Robinson, uh, but it's not Jackie Robinson in a Dodger uniform. It's Jackie Robinson in UCLA Bruin uniform. Uh, so that's very, very uh, special. And to have Keith, the voice of the Rose Bowl, he did 15 of them. Um, he, he christened the game the granddaddy of them all. Uh his voice is synonymous with the Rose Bowl, and to have a statue of Keith would be absolutely awesome.
1: Yeah, and as you mentioned, the event is free, which I think is pretty neat, and the doors open at 3 p.m. for a 4 p.m. event. Uh, what kind of crowd are you expecting, Dan? Do you have any idea? Because, uh, honestly, I would think they'd be turning away at the gates uh, if it were free and it's something to celebrate the life of Keith Jackson. I couldn't wait to get myself, my family, the people I know in, in there and, and experience what is going to be, a, I think, a terrific event
7: yeah you know it's hard to to judge just how many people will be there it's, The weather is going to be in the seventies so that'll be perfect uh a perfect time of day um and you know the one thing that uh the Rose Bowl, which has been fantastic in, in hosting this event putting out the word to you know local high schools and football coaches to get take their teams and and wear their school colors and and sit in the stands and learn about. A great, great man and a great broadcaster and a, a great part of Pasadena and uh, and the Rose Bowl.
1: We're speaking with Hall of Fame quarterback and Hall of Fame voter Dan Fouts on the Talk of Fame Network, and Dan will be speaking at the April fifteenth celebration of Keith Jackson's life at a memorial service at the Rose Bowl. And Dan, I saw someone write recently that Saturday died with the passing of Keith Jackson because his voice is and really may always be associated with Saturday afternoon college football games. And I think the guy who wrote that had it right,
7: don't you? Well, it, there'll never be another one. As I said, you know, we, we've had great college football announcers in Vern Lundquist and, and uh, Brent Musburger. Uh, and, and, you know, and it, what Keith has done uh, with his unique style is he made it a comfortable watch, mm-hmm. uh, much as, as uh, Vern did and, and Brent. Uh, again, two other... Guys I've worked with over my, my career. Uh, but uh, with Keith, uh, you know, you say college
4: football, you think Keith Jackson.
1: Right. Right. Yeah, that's right.
4: Why, Dan, why was he so passionate about college football?
7: Well, you know, he, he uh, went to Washington State uh, after getting out of the service. And uh, he he really... Uh, associated and identified with the, with the Cougars and, uh, you know, living in LA as he did at Sherman in Sherman Oaks, uh, you know, USC and, and UCLA football is huge in Los Angeles. And especially uh, during that period when the Rams and the chargers were not in Los Angeles. So, um, but the, I think it was, it had a lot to do with the relationships that he built with the different coaches I mean, his, his relationship with Paul Bear Bryant and, and with Bo Schembechler and, and with uh, Woody Hayes and with, with uh, Lloyd Carr and Eric Parsegian and, and uh, Frank Broyles, uh, I mean, these are all the all-time great coaches in college football. And they all came to Keith uh, and respected Keith and, and hung out with Keith.
1: Hey, Dan, did, did he give you anything uh, that, you've, that you've kept – um, is something special that you've kept, and if so, what was it?
7: Well, I've got a number of, of, of really great pictures, and uh, uh, but you know, more than more than the pictures, I I, I just miss it, just miss being able to pick up the phone and and say KJ, it's Fauci, <laughs> and have him say Fauci, how you doing? You know, and, <laughs> and uh, we'd spend an hour just talking on the phone, and uh, those are those are things that are gone. Uh, but not forgotten. Right,
4: right. He never said, whoa, Nelly, it's founcy
7: <laughs> Well, you know what? He rarely said that uh, in his later uh, games with me. But we were playing golf one day, and I was in a sand trap uh, alongside the, uh, the the green, and uh, I caught the ball a little bit thin. And it whizzed by his chin by about six (laughs) inches, and he yelled, Whoa, Nelly!
4: (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: Did did you par it or birdie that hole, Dan?
4: (laughs) uh, I'm thinking (laughs) bogey. Hey, Dan, did did he ever get nervous before a game? No, you know what
7: he did? He would dive into it. Um, Keith, it was, I mean, his openings were poetic. And he wrote them all out longhand on a uh, yellow legal pad with a uh, mechanical pencil and in the most beautiful cursive handwriting you've ever seen and He would sit there and pore over, make corrections right up to the last minute and uh, because he wanted it to not only be you know appropriate but he wanted it to sound right and wanted it to feel right to the viewer. <laughs>
1: Hey Dan, last one for me. Is is there something about Keith Jackson that people don't know? I mean, that you do and that you could share? I mean, something about him that we just don't know, and maybe we should.
7: Well, he had a radio show in Lewiston, Idaho. Uh, it was a a partner type of show when he was at uh, at WSU, and so he had to drive, uh, you know, on the horrible highway down to Lewiston from Pullman, and uh, the show was hosted by Snake River Sam. And Clearwater Clem. <laughs> well, Keith, Keith Jackson was Clearwater Clem. So every once in a while, when and it was rare that he would screw up in a broadcast in commercial, I would say, "What did you mean by
4: that, Clem?" <laughs> <laughs> hey Dan, I know he's synonymous with the Rose Bowl. What, what was his favorite stadium? Oh,
7: it had to be the Rose Bowl. Rose Bowl.
4: When,
7: when you're at the Rose Bowl, it, it's like uh, you know. Being the emperor, and, and, you know, and it's, it's back to the uh, the Christians and the lions. And you're standing there, uh, and there's Keith Jackson, and he's he's giving the thumbs up or the thumbs down. It, it was always always a treat to do a game at the Rose Bowl with him.
1: Hey, Dan, uh, we give you the thumbs up for doing this uh, show with us. Thanks so much for the time, and, and best of luck with the service.
7: Always a pleasure, guys. Take care. Thanks,
1: Dan. You got it. That was Hall of Fame quarterback and voter Dan Fowl. It's up next. It's Two Minute Drill. You'll listen to the Talk of Fame Network.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges.
1: Well, we're almost out of time. So, Robert, and that's our producer, Robert Harris Jr., sound the alarm, would you please? That's the two-minute warning. That means we're on to the two-minute drill with Goose calling this week's plays. So, Goose Man, let's get started.
4: If you could assign Hall of Fame presenters, who would you assign to Randy Moss?
1: The guy most liking, Odell Beckham Jr.,
4: a rolling stone to gather him up. <laughs> who would you assign to Terrell Owens? The guy who most understands him, Terrell Owens.
3: <laughs> the guy you need to talk to, Norman Vincent Peel.
4: Who would you assign to Ray Lewis? The
1: guy who invented his dance, Rocket J. Squirrel.
4: <laughs> <laughs> uh, same church, different pew. Somebody to help him with his dance, Ben Vereen. <laughs> who would you assign to ben? Brian Urlacher?
1: The guy who threw him his only NFL touchdown pass, under Brad Maynard. Dick
4: Butkus. Yeah. <laughs> who would you sign to Brian Dawkins?
1: The guy who looks up to him, if you know what I mean, Goose. John Lynch.
4: Kyle Live asked him, how in the
3: hell did... <laughs> 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 who would you sign to Jerry Kramer?
1: The guy who's behind him
3: all the way, Paul Hornan. Another guy behind him all the way, Bart
4: Starr. Maybe he knows why this took so long. <laughs> <laughs> who would you sign to Robert Brazil?
1: The guy who named him Dr. Doom. Former USC linebacker Richard Wood.
3: <laughs> I'll go you one better. x rated defensive back Skip Thomas. Dr. Death introducing Dr. Doom.
1: Ooh, I like it. Who would
3: you sign to Bobby Bethard?
1: The smartest man in the NFL today. Tom
3: Brady. The smartest man in his own house. Clark. They could
4: jog out together one last time.
3: <laughs> now I like that.
4: <laughs> Baker Mayfield, Curtis Mayfield, or home run Baker?
1: Ginger Baker. Next best drummer to Keith Moon.
4: Baker's dozen. Thirteen chances to get one draft pick right. Former UCLA coach Jim Morris says his former quarterback, Josh Rosen, needs to be challenged intellectually. Name you an NFL quarterback who doesn't.
3: Colin Kaepernick. (laughs) Geno Smith. Why challenge challenge a guy to no good end?
4: In an Odell Beckham Jr. for Rod Drabkowski swap, which team would get the better deal?
3: Team that gets Gronk.
1: You get two for the price of one, Goose. TDs and lots of laughs.
3: Exactly. The Giants because they get Gronk who comes to play and the other guys get Odell who comes to Kovech.
1: That's the end of the first That's the end of the first hour, but don't go anywhere. We have Hall of Fame Voter Shereen Williams, Patriots defense back Devin McCourty, and the best and brightest of Penn State coming up in the second hour. So stay where you are. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio.
1: And online at SBNationLive.com.
0: From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to our number two of the Talk of
1: Fame Network, where in the next six minutes we will talk to the Hall of Fame voter Shereen Williams about the best Dallas Cowboy, not, not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame from Patriots defensive back Devin McCourty on the Players Coalition and we'll also address Penn State University as in we, we
4: are, are Penn State.
1: There you go. Penn State as our pre-draft tour of the best and brightest NFL feeder schools continues. Ronnie, I guess that means we're not going to be going to Dartmouth or Brandeis, huh? Uh,
3: not if we're looking for football players.
1: <laughs> well, maybe Rhodes Scholars. I don't know. Um, where I do want to go, however, um, is Arizona. We're, we're a company... And it's not a a school, but a company is working on a test to identify CTE biomarkers in living patients and is asking NFL players for help. So, so far, nine have responded, including former tight end Steve Jordan, who went to Brown, by the way, um, former safety and now broadcaster Solomon Wilcox. Uh, has said the study is, quote, ground zero for the launch of this really important study, unquote. And and you know what, Ron? I think he's right, um, because until now, and, and you're a big CTE guy. It, you want to find the cause of it and, the, and what the NFL is doing. But CTE's only been identified during an op- autopsy. I think this is sort of a breakthrough study, honestly.
3: Yeah, well, yeah, I think it is, Clark. If, uh, uh, obviously, I'm sure they have a long way to go. It, you know, it's yeah. great news that they're starting down this road, but there'll be a lot of testing and so forth. They, 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 the, the thing I wonder about, though, is uh, if they do develop a successful test for, for markers, will players want to know or not know? Well, that's a good question. You, once and you find the markers, is it already too late? You know, I, I don't know the answer.
1: Yeah, and that's a good question. And, and, Goose, I'll ask you, because nine players have volunteered. I mean, they're looking for 200, um, so they've got 191 to go. But if you were a former player, Goose, and I'll just follow with Ron's question, would you do it? I mean, like he said, maybe you don't want to know if you have the biomarkers. I'm sure uh, I probably would not. Though I was told, by the way, um, that you won't be notified of individual results with this study.
4: Yeah, i do it. And if you're not going to be told the results, why not? You know, this is an issue that needs to be addressed, and this is an ambitious way of addressing it. Education is the first line of defense against this disease, and the more data you collect, the more educated you become on CT. So I'd certainly be part of the 200.
1: Well, it sounds like a story that's worth following, and we will. But right now, we're going to go to commercial. And when we return, it's all about linebacker you. sometimes known as we are. Penn State. There you go. This is the Talk of Fame Network. <laughs>
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hey, before
1: we celebrate Penn State, I want to mention another school I celebrate every day. And that's Dartmouth College with just but David Shula, That'd be class of 81 and Don Shula, of course, back on the football field after 22 years away from it. Yep, Dartmouth just hired the former Big Green alum. I covered him in 1981 when he was with the Baltimore Colts as its wide receivers coach, which makes sense because that's the position he played in Hanover and later with the Colts. So welcome back, David. Now beat Harvard. (laughs)
3: <laughs> He's a perfect coach to coach wide receivers at Dartmouth. He couldn't run and either connect. make. <laughs> That's right. Maybe he can figure out a way
1: to beat Harvard. I think they've beaten him since 2003. Anyway, nice to have a Shula back in the NFL. Now on to Penn State. Uh, as you know, in the weeks leading up to the 2018 NFL draft, we've been looking at the top college producers of NFL talent, and we've already visited the universities of Texas, Florida, and Oklahoma. So this week, the bus pulls into State College, Pennsylvania, which has been a busy place with NFL teams flocking there to work out running back Saquon Barkley, Big Ten's MVP, and maybe Goose, just maybe, the best player in this year's draft.
4: Yeah, you know, running backs from Penn State have a very checkered history. Lenny Moore left the Penn State campus as a first-round draft pick for a Hall of Fame career with the Colts. Franco Harris was another first-round draft pick, became a Hall of Famer. Kurt Warner, Larry Johnson were first-rounders. Lito Mitchell a second. They enjoyed Pro Bowl careers. But D.J. Dozier, Blake Blair Thomas, Curtis Enos, Kajana Carter were all first-round picks who did not justify their lofty draft status. You know, Carter was the first overall pick of his draft, Thomas second overall, Enos fifth overall. So the hits at running back from Penn State have been huge, but so have the misses.
1: So, Goose, I guess what you're telling us is there's a reason Penn State is called uh, linebacker U, not running back U?
4: Yes, sir, unlike running backs, linebackers have been in the money, money in the bank at Penn State. The Nittany Lions have 23 linebackers drafted in the first three rounds of drafts. Eight became Pro Bowlers, two became Hall of Famers, Jack Hammond, Dave Robinson. Shane Conley was a fixture on that Buffalo defense went to four consecutive Super Bowls. Matt Millen won four Super Bowls as middle linebacker for the Raiders Fort and Redskins LeVar Arrington second overall pick who became a pro bowler Sean Lee is the best current defensive player on the Cowboys Scott Radisek, Jim Laslavic, Paul Polusny Navarro Bowman Greg Butle all became solid pros off the Penn State campus and there's another one who'll be drafted this month Jason Cabenda a second team all Big Ten linebacker he just, the hits just keep on coming <laughs> keep
1: on coming <laughs> glad you mentioned Laz Jim Laslavic. I used to do uh, radio and TV shows with him out in San Diego. Still a big name out there, but more as a radio and TV personality <laughs> than as a former linebacker. Hey, Ronnie, um, is there a logical explanation for the six Penn State has had at linebacker? I mean, all those guys you mentioned, just one after another after another. It's um, a litany of good and great players. Any logical explanation here?
3: I don't really think so. Uh, I don't think there's ever really a logical explanation for any of these schools that are known for you know quarterbacks or running backs, or in this case, linebackers. Um, now, obviously, uh, they value the position, and they target it when they're recruiting. And uh, they're, they're clearly drawing through, a, a drawing from a, a great pool of, of local talent in Pennsylvania, especially western Pennsylvania, where the players are as hard as the coal. Uh, and I think once you get a reputation for producing highly successful players at a particular position, probably more guys tend to want to go there and join the fraternity and gravitate that way. Uh, and obviously, they have a coaching staff that understands how to develop uh, linebackers. And, uh, you know, how that position is played. So I think those things all sort of factor together. But uh, once you've had a few good ones, you can sort of see why guys are saying, well, that's the place to go if you're you're a linebacker.
1: Okay, so, Ron, is there any logical explanation that the UConn women just lost in basketball? Oh, no, forget
3: it. I'm going to stick to the script here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the other team was
1: better. (laughs) Unbelievable. (laughs) Two years in a row. Same thing. Um, (laughs) But um, Penn State has produced six Hall of Famers. Six. In your mind... Who is the greatest of them to come out of Penn State?
3: Well, it's kind of interesting, uh, Clark, because you can look at that question several ways. Uh, are we talking about the best players to then go on and have a big NFL career? Uh, uh, you know, Several players, as Goose pointed out earlier, are Hall of Famers? Or, is, or are we talking about the best college football player? Uh, okay. In my mind, the, the, the combination of the two, the best combination of the two, would be Lenny Moore. Uh, mm-hmm. who started right. both running back and defense back in the mid-50s at Penn State. He averaged 6.2 yards a rush for his career there. and was second in the country in rushing in 1954 and only carried 136 times. But I digress. Only one Penn State player won the Heisman Trophy. Only one Penn State player has his number retired, and that Penn State player is the same guy, John Capaletti. Uh So in my wow. mind, he has to wow. be their greatest player. Joe Paterno called him the greatest player I ever coached, uh, and that's good enough for me. Yeah, but Joe Pajoran did, didn't coach Lenny Moore. Did Cap Moore. Lenny
4: wear spats?
3: Yeah. He did not wear spats. He did oh, not man, wear Lenny Lenny spats. Lenny the edge. He wore wristbands. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that would be Lenny Moore, friend of the show, too, by the way. <laughs> Love Lenny. Um, Hey, Gooseman, <laughs> who's go into a different position. Um, Western PA, it, it, it's, their history of, of quarterbacks is legendary, and it includes Hall of Famers Johnny U, Joe Namath, Dan Marino, and Joe Montana. Wow, it's a pretty good Mount Rushmore quarterbacks. Uh, but not one of them Went to the State University of Pennsylvania. So the best quarterback from Penn State, Goose, I mean, you told me earlier, Kerry Collins, who took the Carolina Panthers to an NFC title game and the Giants to a Super Bowl. So what's the problem here? I mean, what's the root of the disconnect between Penn State and the state's
4: elite quarterbacks? Well, I think it's a long time disconnect that spanned the Joe Paterno era. He was a run-the-ball, play-defense coach. Heck, he recruited Jim Kelly to play linebacker. Yeah, Which is why he right. went to Miami to throw the football. You know, if you wanted right. to throw the football, you don't want to go to Penn State. You know, Namath goes to Alabama, Montana, Notre Dame. Um, Marino stayed home pit. Uh, Johnny U went to Louisville. You know, this, was, this is more of a Big Ten team before they ever got into the Big Ten. They wanted to run the ball and play defense under Paternal.
1: So, Goose, does that change now, do you think? I mean, now that's sort of a, a different philosophy there, and uh, it's, it's I, I would think, more wide open. It has to be more wide open.
4: Yeah, more teams are thrown, but the Big Ten is still does a lot of running the football. And he, Michael Robinson was Big Ten uh, MVP when you quarterback, and he became a fullback in the NFL. So if if you want to put up big numbers, you want to go warm. You're going to go down south or go out west.
1: That's the signal that we're not going down south or out west. We're going to Michigan State for our next segment with alum Rick Goslin, otherwise known as Dr. Data with his take on yet another university, the University of Southern Cal. Doc, take it away.
4: Now, There's a debate at the top of the 2018 draft board as to which quarterback would be the best pick for the Cleveland Browns. Sam Darnold, Josh Rosen, Josh Allen, and Baker Mayfield have all been in the discussion. But there should be no debate as to who the safest pick would be. That would be Sam Darnold because players selected first overall from Southern Cal don't miss. There have been five Trojans selected first overall in the history of NFL drafts. Two became Hall of Famers, offensive tackle Ron Yeri, who went first overall in 1968, and running back O.J. Simpson, who went first in 1969. Two other Trojans selected first overall became three-time Pro Bowlers, wide receiver Keyshawn Johnson in 1996 and quarterback Carson Palmer in 2003. Johnson caught 106 passes in 2001 and helped the Tampa Bay Buccaneers win a Super Bowl in 2002. Palmer has started for three franchises in his 14-year career and passed for 4,000-yard seasons for all three of them. He threw 32 touchdown passes in a single season for the Bengals and 35 in a single season for the Cardinals. Palmer, of course, announced his retirement this offseason as the NFL's 12th all-time leading passer. Not bad. The only Southern Cal player selected number number one overall who did not go to at least one Pro Bowl was running back Ricky Bell, who became the first selection of the expansion Tampa Bay Buccaneers in 1976 bucks were terrible his first two seasons they won only two games but he had a 1200 yard rushing season in his third year to help the buccaneers reach the nfc title game but his career would only last six seasons because of health health issues he passed away at the age of 29 because of heart failure donald started two seasons of southern cal but elected to skip his final two years to turn pro he threw a career high 31 touchdown passes in 2016 and passed for a career high 4,100 yards in 2017, on his way to All Pac-12 honors. So success at Southern Cal generally translates into success in the NFL. If the Browns want safe, they want Darnold.
3: Well, Gooseman, uh as we t- have talked as we talked about here, you know, here you've got the cross down rival UCLA coach saying. Yeah, yeah, take Darnold, don't take Rose. And <laughs> now saying, well, I'm trying to do Rosen a favor so he doesn't have to go to Cleveland. If you're the Cleveland Browns, uh kick of the draft that you always have been, what quarterback do you
4: take? They want to sit their quarterback for a year and play Tyrod Taylor. Of the of the guys that you want to sit, I, I would take Josh Allen. He's got the, well, the, the NFL measurables. He's the best prototypical quarterback in this draft, and he's got the biggest upside. He could be Ben Roethlisberger or Carson Wentz. He's the guy. If you want to sit him for a year, Take Allen. If you want to play him right now, go with Darnold.
1: Thank you, Jim Moore. I mean, thanks, Goose. Uh, With all this talk about colleges, I want to go back to school. And you know what, guys? Maybe we will with our next guest, Shereen Williams, who will school all of us on the Dallas Cowboys. And we've got to get to to her, and we will. This is the Talk of Fame Network.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick. And Ron Borges. Well, each week on the Talk of Fame Network,
1: we get into something we call our best not in Canada series. That's not in Canada series, which sort of explains itself. We make stops in all thirty-two NFL cities to talk to Hall of Fame voters about the most glaring omissions in their towns. And the stop today? Well, it's Goose's hometown of Dallas, where we visit with Pro Football Talk Shireen Williams, who's one of the city's two Hall of Fame voters, along of course with our own Dr. Data, Hey, Shereen, thanks for joining us again.
2: Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
4: Shireen, you and I have both been pounded locally that Cowboys are woefully underrepresented in the Hall of Fame, that there should be at least six or seven more Cowboys enshrined. So in your opinion, which Cowboy is the most glaring omission?
2: Well, you know, I think it's kind of hard, and, and part of the reason it's kind of hard is there are six or seven guys, and everybody has their favorite, and you know, I kind of narrowed it down to not counting, of course, DeMarcus Ware, who's still a few years away sure. from being eligible, but for the, the, those 70 guys and 80s guys, I kind of narrowed it down to two guys that I, I think are the, are the should go in first, and, and that's Chuck Howley and Cliff Harris. And, and I finally decided on Cliff Harris. You know, he, he was on the all-70s, uh, all-decade team and, and just did so many great things for the Cowboys. And, and I know we've kind of underappreciated safeties, and they're so hard to measure, but he was just such a big part uh, of those teams in the 70s for the Cowboys that, that he would be my choice, I think, over Chuck Kelly, but Chuck Kelly's a close second for me.
3: Well, one of our favorite guys uh, here, Shireen, is Drew Pearson. He, uh, uh, he, oh, he launched into to, uh, <laughs> <laughs> his whole thing on our show <laughs> several times. Terrific. Yeah. Uh, uh, look, he was a first-team all-decade player from the 70s, uh, and um, you know, it's shocking when when you think about it that the Cowboys have two yeah. all all-decade players from the seventies. Not in. You know, how do you look at Drew and and uh, do you think he helped himself at all with his uh, uh, that whole performance at the draft, <laughs> which was one of the greatest things ever? Yeah, well,
2: you know, he's he's really stayed in the limelight, which you know, it's kept his name at the forefront, which. As we all know, you know, we all saw these guys play in in the 70s. But There's so many voters now who didn't see these guys play, and and they don't know them. And when they disappear, you know, the Cliff Harris's and the Chuck Halley's and Leroy Jordan's and those types of guys, Harvey Martin, who's now passed, um, you know, their their names aren't brought up all the time. They don't hear them, and a lot of people don't know who they are, and, and I think that does help him. Uh, because he is still out there, his name's still out there, and you still hear it, and 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 you know kind of, sort of who he is, and you know a problem. We talked about the safeties kind of being being a problem, and we haven't been fair to them. How do you judge them? Do you judge them on tackles, do you judge them on interceptions. Like how do you judge safeties? They're all different. No, well, with receivers, I think when we go back to the seventies, they don't they didn't put up the stats that these guys today do, and I, and I think that's really overlooked. You know, when he, when a guy has 7,800 yards like Drew Pierce, Michigan, a ah, big deal. But he was such a big part of those Cowboys teams. You know, played in 22 playoff games. Who plays in 22 playoff games? Not very many people. Unless you play for the New England Patriots these days and, and are on that team for a really long time like Tom Brady, you just don't do that. And, and so I think that, that speaks to um, how well he played for such a long period of time. And obviously if you want the signature play, um, it go, it's the it's the Hail Mary that he had in the playoffs against the Vikings in 1975 and that massive upset. I think he he hits he ticks all those boxes that we kind of look for. Uh, so does Cliff Harris. And you talk about um, those two guys being overlooked from the All Decade Team. This is the same committee that votes for those All Decade Teams. So if you're on the All Decade Team, it seemed to me that you probably should be in the Hall of Fame at some point.
1: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Shereen, and, and I'll tell you, I, I'm not going to talk about Harris specifically, but Pearson, I will, because he is a favorite of ours. We've had him on the show two or three times. And the thing they just don't get, he's a first-team, all-decade wide receiver, and he's waited all this time, and yet we can't wait to get Terrell Owens in, who is a second-team, all-decade receiver, and we get him in his third year. And we talked to Drew Pearson about this, he goes, listen, I, I don't have a lot of sympathy for him, because I've waited three decades and he seems to have been forgotten, and, and yet there was a clutch receiver. As you say, he doesn't have those cumulative stats because it was a different game, yet he made big play after big play after big play, and he just seems to be forgotten. I, I don't know how you resurrected him. I guess it's up to the senior committee that Goose and, and Rod on, but boy, that one I just don't get.
2: Yeah, and I don't either. And, you know, it's, it's really hard on those guys that, that they do wait all that time, it's, if they had beaten Pittsburgh in one of those two Super Bowls, the uh, Cowboys I'm talking about, you know, we probably do see more of these guys in. They didn't. I mean, that's just a fact of life. And, and But, again, I think he checks all those boxes that we look for. And, if and if you you know, a lot of times we hear in the Hall of Fame room, you know, what do your eyes tell you? Is the guy a Hall of Famer? And I think when you watch Cliff Harris or Drew Pearson or Chuck Cowley, I, I think your eyes tell you, yes, this is a Hall of Fame player. Uh, for what he did in the decade he played in, and you know, again, we can't. I don't. We can't compare the players from then to the players now. It's a completely different game. But I think the era that Drew Pearson played in, I don't think there was any doubt that he was a Hall of Fame player and just came up with so many great catches uh, in so many big games and, and played for eleven seasons and had the Pro Bowls and had three All Pros and, and did all those things that we want a guy to do. And it's like, okay, what else did he had had to have to do? To get into the Hall of Fame, he's, he's done everything we look for. And your eyes tell you he's a Hall of Famer. And it, it, we have so many that have fallen through the cracks. And he's another one of those guys who's kind of fallen through those cracks. And, in fact, he fell through the cracks with Cowboys for a really long time uh, in the Ring of Honor.
4: Shereen, you mentioned Howley. We, we've discussed both Howley and Leroy Jordan in senior meetings you picked Hallie over Jordan. What what separates Hallie from Jordan?
2: Well, you know, I think it's the All Decade. He was second team All Decade in the '60s. I think that's one thing. Obviously, the Super Bowl MVP was big, and and I think if you talk to some of those people uh, back then um, who who had both of those guys, who coached both of those guys, uh, who saw both of those guys play, I think they would. Gi- most of them would give Hallie a little tick over Leroy Jordan um, for some of those reasons, probably. Uh, but otherwise they're pretty much the same and maybe that's what's kept both of those guys out of the Hall of Fame. It's just one of them. Uh, It makes it far easier but again we're talking about a guy who you know some people have their favorite is Chuck Halley and some people have their favorite is Leroy Jordan which makes it much harder uh, because it's not a consensus of okay this is the best linebacker that the Cowboys ever had. Um, There are people who are split between those two guys which makes it much much harder.
3: You know one guy that I've always wondered about how he disappeared and is Harvey Martin. I mean, he had 23 sacks unofficially in 1977, which is the NFL record, uh, unofficially. He's a member of the 100-sack club. He's a former Super Bowl MVP, and you know as well as I do, Shereen, if he was playing today, the talking heads with the blowed hair uh, would all be saying, future first ballot Hall of Famer. Uh, Instead, he's a guy who's never even been a finalist. What do you make of the strange case of Harvey Martin?
2: Yeah, another another guy. You know, I, I think he checks off all the things. He was second team all decade? He was defensive player of the year in '77. Co, you know, Super Bowl MVP, as you said. Another guy that played 22 postseason games. Just a really good pass rusher, and you know, he would be one of those guys today that they're paying massive amounts of money to uh, because he rushes the passer so well. And the Cowboys actually listed him as their leader, even though that SAC, sack weren't official statistic until 1982. The Cowboys listed him as their leader in sacks until DeMarcus Ware broke that uh, record. So, you know, he does have that, too, and and just an outstanding player for the Cowboys and and another one who, uh, you know, I think you go back to to one of those Super Bowl games against the Steelers, they lost. If if they win one of those games, probably more of these guys are in there. But you're right, he's a guy who's completely fallen through. Like, we don't even hear his name uh, come up, and I do think he he should be uh, at least mentioned in some of these uh, things when we're talking about guys who've fallen through the cracks and, and we've overlooked, I do think he's one of those guys, uh, simply for the numbers he's put up and the things he, that he did uh, in his day. But you know, we have just named what five guys. Again, I think this is why it's hard. We just named five guys from the Cowboys, and you know, Goose brought up. You guys brought up Drew Pearson. I say Cliff Harris with Chuck Howley close say it. So everybody has their has their favorite on which one of these guys deserves to go in first, which, again, makes it harder. If we were just talking about one guy, I think it would make it far easier to get that guy in. And well, you know, maybe it's Chuck Hallen, maybe it's Drew Pearson, maybe it's Cliff Harris, maybe it's Harvey Martin. Uh, there's really no just consensus that this is the guy who needs to go in next.
1: Well, Shereen, you're right. We have been talking about five guys, but guess what? I'm going to give you a sixth, Darren Woodson. <laughs> I mean, we've had ron wolf on here and he's yeah. pushing LeRoy butler and i understand it LeRoy butler but he says what about darren woodson i mean those 1990s cowboys um and and they won Super Bowls, um you know three of those four years he can't ever get into the room as a finalist um and you talked about the safeties and there does seem to be a long line of safeties already in the queue ahead of him but doesn't he at least deserve to be discussed yeah i don't think
2: there's any doubt about that and you know again it's what do you want out of your safeties and i think this is a guy who who did kind of what we're looking for uh at the safety position you know he did have 23 interceptions and you know massive numbers of, of tackles um almost a thousand tackles and 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 did kind of the things that that we want a safety to do that we kind of look for you know the the five Pro Bowls and three All-Pros, you know, won the Super Bowls and was a big part of those Super Bowl teams. He just didn't ride on the coattails of, of Deion Sanders and, and Charles Haley and those guys. He was a big part of that, a, a leader, and, uh, and on the field and off the field uh, for those teams. And, and, yeah, he's a guy who can't even get into the room to be discussed, and I think he has a hard time understanding why. And, you know, these safeties, you know, I do like that we have put in a few over the last couple of years, which I think helped. Uh, that position, Brian Dawkins, going in helps, and, and there's some more out there that we can talk about that that deserves uh, at least to be discussed more than than what they have over the, over the past few years. And, and we've just overlooked that position and not quite figured out what we want to see out of the safety position, but this is a guy who could kind of do it all back there for the Cowboys.
1: Hey, Shireen, thanks so much for the time, and we'll see you in Canton this summer. Hope to see you there.
2: Thank you, guys.
1: Thanks for it. That was Hall of Fame voter Shereen Williams at Pro Football Talk. Up next, it's Patriots defense back Devin McCourty. This is the Talk of Fame Network.
0: B Nation Radio, from the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, the Patriots'
1: Devin McCourty has made an impact since the first day he entered the NFL nine
0: years ago as the Patriots' first draft pick.
1: He's a two-time Super Bowl champ, two-time Pro Bowl selection for the past five years, one of the team's captains, but you know what, he's more than that. Devin has joined the recently created Players Coalition and has now served as chairman of its Economic and Education Advancement Committee. Several weeks ago, Devin was one of the patriots who lobbied the Massachusetts State Legislature to raise the age for juvenile prosecutions, helping to dislodge a bill for a vote that has been stuck and had been stuck in committee for months. So he's making a difference on and off the field, and he's here to talk about it today. Devin, thanks so much for joining us again.
6: No, no problem. Thanks for having me.
3: Devin, when the player this player movement for social change began, uh, as uh, you know, sort of in the wake of the national anthem controversy, uh, did you have any idea it would turn into what it's become? Both in terms of the controversy that began it, and the actions that that you and some of your fellow players have taken.
6: Um, I wouldn't say exactly, um, but I thought the cool thing was you saw a lot of players uh, wanting to make a real difference and. Um, Being able to to link up with the players' coalition, what Malcolm uh, Jenkins and and Antoine Bolton had already started, uh, had been in the work. So, um, just seeing the work they put in, you know, I think with the anthem and everything that happened, people didn't realize that, you know, work had been put in for like two years. Um, So, you know, the anthem kind of brought to me the the notoriety of what these guys are already doing. And I think we took advantage of it by doing some good things that actually help people, um, not just, you know, the protests and people talking about that, but now people have to talk about some of the good works that have been doing uh, have been done in the community.
4: Devin, my understanding is that your consciousness was first raised to the kind of issues the players are trying to address mm-hmm. after a shooting several years ago and a reaction from your brother, Jason. What happened?
6: Yeah, just, you know, being, I remember we were training uh, for training camp out in Arizona, um, we were in the house with our wives and the kids, and just seeing, uh, I think it was the shoot. I, I want to say it was Phil Castile, but I don't, I don't remember exactly uh, what you said, that there's been so many. Um, but watching that and, you know, just knowing that social media would get blown up with a ton of people uh, doing messages and, you know, all of that, and I remember I was just sitting there like, you know, it would be, it'd be great if players or people with a platform can actually do something. That would make a difference, not just, you know, get some type of hashtag going for, you know, an hour, two hours. Um, and, you know, I think that's what we've kind of developed now, an opportunity for players to, to give back to these communities and, and create real change um, that will affect generations, you know, going forward in America.
1: Well, Devin, as I said in the introduction, you actually are getting things done. Um, and and I live in New England, and, and I know – The Patriots aren't exactly known for getting involved in things that might be considered distracting. But you're in the middle of this, and you're trying to get things done and make a difference. Um, Has that been tough for you? I mean, how have you circumvented the waters between social activism and, let's say, the Patriot way?
6: Oh, I think it's a line. You know, I think you just look through our roster. We have a ton of guys that are very active and, you know, you name it, any type of charitable um, thing. And you look at our owner, Mr. Kraft and his family, with Jonathan, and, and the rest of the Kraft family. They have the, the New England Charitable Foundation that does a ton of work um, in helping people that are less fortunate, whether it be uh, giving out turkeys at Thanksgiving time, whether it be different uh, illnesses and sicknesses. Um, you know, and I align that with the same thing. This is, you know, we're helping communities and people that, you know, have disadvantages in our community and in our system, we're trying to spotlight that and make a change to it. So, um, honestly, you know, I think everyone from the Patriots has been very supportive, trying to get involved, Um, and I think that kind of showed me, you know, what I was doing was the right thing, you know, and seeing the support and people wanting to be involved, I I think it kind of inspired me to do more and get more involved and try to open – you know, the door for different people in our organization to be able to have a place and a, and a platform to give back the way they want to. And, uh, you've seen that kind of open and happen, and, you know, Jonathan Kraft has been uh, along with us to uh, listen and learn. Uh, which she had a good time, he learned a lot. So um, just being a part of that has been, been awesome for me.
3: Well, Devin, so you, you mentioned Jonathan being with you at the uh, one of the functions in Harvard uh, Law School. I know you've been a couple of them. Um, if you could tell us, uh, the listeners, maybe a little bit of Jonathan's reaction and, and the reaction of you guys as well, which led to uh, the efforts um, that you had with the legislature to change uh, the age in which juveniles would be con- considered uh, tried as as criminals in Massachusetts. Um, What sort of happened that day? What was said that sort of shocked everybody and led guys to do what you've done?
6: Yeah, I would say the thing that kind of made everyone almost jump out of their seat, especially Jonathan, was just hearing, you know, that the juvenile age was seven years old. You know, it was the earliest the kid could be introduced um, to our juvenile system. And, And hearing that Um, And just think about a seven-year-old having to be dragged into court and and have some type of record uh, shocked us all. And then, you know, as we dove deeper and talked to more of the experts, we kind of learned, you know, even though the low age was seven, um, you know, kids still 10, 11 uh, were the ones who really were thrown in the system and had to deal with this, Um, and that kind of really made us want to go to legislation uh, and talk to legislators about raising that age to 12 years old um, and try to get these kids a chance of, of some type of rehabilitation that doesn't involve, you know, being in juvenile system. And, you know, it was awesome. I thought Troy Brown told some very good stories just about his upbringing um, that I think had a lasting effect on everyone that heard it. So um, just seeing, you know, our ability to go and speak for different people in the community that felt the same way that we felt um, and using our platform was huge, and, you know, it felt like it made a difference.
3: How did the politicians react to you guys? I mean, do you think if it had been just, you know, a half a dozen community activists as opposed to a, uh, a number of Patriot players, that you would have had the same reaction in terms of moving that bill out of committee?
6: Um, probably not, and, you know, I say that just from talking to different activists. Uh, that was what they told us. You know, I think the, the thing that was important to all of us in the coalition was to sit down with the activists and, and learn from their expertise and the work that they've been putting in for their whole careers. Um, and we've been educated that way. And from sitting down and talking to them, they talked about what a difference it was with us coming there um, and getting that bill uh, passed along on the floor. So, um, you know, just our presence, you know, helped. And I think that's something that we got to continue uh, to do, you know. And I think we all said that while we were there that. You know, this is a good start, and we want to be involved, and we will have no problem coming back to the state offices. So um, the politicians seem very open talking to us, um, but, you know, like anything, you want to see the change and see what happens in the future.
4: Devin, recently, Houston Texans owner Bob McNair said, quote, our playing fields are not the place for political statements. How does that jibe with playing the national anthem? Unfurling 100-yard flags and having military flyovers weekend after weekend. Are, are there two sets of rules there?
6: Yeah, I think the, the key thing is that's not even a rule. You know, there's nothing um, that stops us as players from doing kind of anything that we want to do out there as far as when we're out there, how we represent ourselves. Is, it's under, we have a, a ton of league rules that we have to follow uh, that come in our handbook. And as long as we do that, um, I think there's no problem you know to say that that's not the, the place I think we all found out over these last two years that it's definitely the place because guys have got a lot of a lot of things done um, with protesting on the field and, and uh, standing up for what they believe in and using that platform of millions of people watching thousands of people in attendance at the game um, and I think now people that actually care about what we're talking about and trying to listen and learn to what we're saying. I think they're even blown away by some of the statistics that are coming out um, and, and realizing that they need to get involved in that. Like we all been saying from the beginning, this has nothing to do with um, our military. We all you know, strongly support our military and very thankful for what they do. Um, and I think people now have dove into it. So every time one of these owners says something that doesn't really make sense, I think it, it spotlights the work that we're doing and gives people opportunity uh, to check out the real thing.
1: We're speaking to Patriots defensive back Devin McCourty on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at at talkoffamenet. And, Devin, uh, sort of following on that, um, you know, one of the ideas that's been floated out there was something that Mike Tomlin tried last year in Pittsburgh, and that's to keep the teams in the locker room during the playing of the National Anthem as it used to be years ago. What do you think about that?
6: I think that's up to each individual. You know, I think... The, the truth is that time before the game is kind of different for each guy you know how you decide to get ready for the game you know whether you decide to protest or not protest I think all of that plays a factor um, I think the one thing when they did that they talked about they wanted to do what they felt was best as a team um, so I, I don't think there's a, a right or a wrong when it comes to that um, I think that's just something that teams in the NFL are, are trying to deal with I think for us it's more important about the issues, not like the anthem's not the issue to us. And um, I think if teams decide to do or the NFL does that, you know, that doesn't change how we view what we need to do in communities and the change that we need in America. That doesn't change because we've been saying like the anthem has nothing to do with um, anything that we're trying to do. It just as a platform uh, that we try to put a spotlight on different people going through things that we felt uh, just wasn't fair.
3: One thing I'm wondering about uh, whether this is going to become an issue for the Players' Coalition is this situation of Colin Kaepernick and and Eric Reed. They both remain without jobs, as you know. Uh, And you know, you've known me a long time, Devin. I'm kind of old school, bottom line guy. Teams can tell me all they want that there's no boycott, but I don't believe it. Uh, You know, these guys uh, working, and both of them were pretty successful players. Um, Do you guys in the Coalition have any plans to do try to do anything? Uh, to try to help those guys or that situation? Because it would seem to me, if if this continues, there'll be a chilling effect that's going uh, to, I would think, make it difficult for, uh, for the Players Coalition to do what they hope to do.
6: Yeah, I think all of us have spoken out about that as far as when asked our true opinion of, like you just said, Ron, that we feel like those guys are being blackballed, you know, and it's hard to prove that. Like, you can't just come and, you know, I think everyone thinks that, but you can't just... There's nothing you can do to prove that, but I think speaking um, about it and not being silent is definitely something that you know we're doing What asked about it and the opportunities we get to talk about it. Um, but as far as the coalition, I think that was something that Malcolm mentioned months ago back during the season um, when trying to, to bring all the players together was that we needed to, to realize that if it stayed small groups of guys that wanted to you know, raise awareness and, and protest that the NFL would find a way to get all of those guys out the league. And we knew, as a group, the Players' Coalition—the stronger it was, as far as numbers of players that want to be involved—you know—then the league couldn't just get rid of us. You know, that would be too hard to do. Um, so we continue to try to build with the players that want to be involved and and speak out. And there's many different roles you can have in the Players' Coalition. Uh, but our true belief is—you know—there's strength in numbers, and I think. Um, that's something that we realize as players. Um, obviously, you know, I'm going to my ninth year. You know, it, it would be nothing for a team to say, you know, let's not use this veteran safety. Uh, or a guy like Malcolm who's also is going to his tenth year. So um, we want to keep it fresh. We want to get new guys in there, young guys. Everyone who wants to be involved, but we want them to know, you know, as long as we remain strong as a coalition, you know, there's nothing that they can do to hurt us because when you when you look at the facts, you know, what we're trying to do is help people and you know the things that we're helping are wrong. Um and I think we'll all continue to do that.
1: Hey Devin, thanks so much for the time. Uh best of luck with the players coalition. Sounds like you're off to a pretty good start.
6: Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you guys for having uh, having me on and allowing me to
1: talk. You got Thanks, it. Devin. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Appreciate Devin. it. That was Patriots defensive back Devin McCourty. Up next. It's two-minute drill.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts Studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. We're just about out of time, so Robert, blow that whistle.
1: That's the two-minute warning. That means it's time for a two-minute drill. Gooseman, let's get going.
4: Should the Bengals cut Vontaze Perfect?
1: Uh-huh, yes they should.
3: But where? <laughs> no, they should make him team captain. Who better represent Marvin Lewis's Bengals?
4: Past starters, Richard Sherman, Jimmy Graham, Michael Bennett, Thomas Rawls, Jeremy Lane, and Paul Richardson have all departed Seattle this offseason. GM John Snyder calls it a reset. What do you call it?
1: A sunset.
4: <laughs> ah, that's very clever. Uh, not so hot mess. Malcolm Butler says New England would have won the Super Bowl had he played. So are we to assume Butler was more available to the Patriots than Tom Brady?
1: No, sirree, Last time I checked, Tom Brady was the MVP of the league.
3: He was in that game. That defense gave up over 300 yards before
4: the end of the first half. Who will have the better season in 2018, Tom Brady or Deshaun Watson? Oh, come on, Goose. Is this
1: another trick question? One guy has more Super Bowl appearances and the other has NFL starts.
4: So what's your answer?
3: Brady! <laughs> Deshaun Watson, because if the Patriots don't find a new left tackle, Brady
4: won't be around for the better part of the season. <laughs> Who will be the first running back ejected this season for using his helmet as a weapon?
1: Beast mode, provided, of course, that he's still around.
3: (laughs) Ezekiel Elliott, followed by a note from Goodell to Jerry Jones saying, How about them,
4: Cowboys? (laughs) (laughs) The the Raiders have signed 33-year-old cornerback Leon Holm for agency. Will John Gruden build an old folks home in Oakland like he did in Tampa? Sure,
3: why not, Goose? Seniors love Vegas. (laughs) No, Gruden assumes they're only one player away. Not sure from what, though.
4: Speaking of Gruden, he cut punter Marquette King, who finished third in the NFL in that average last season. If special teams are supposed to be third of the game, what's Gruden's percentage?
1: Right now, Goose, it's a Blutarski.
3: 0.00.
4: <laughs> Gruden's smart. He
3: only intends to kick off, assuming that's all what you do after you score.
4: NFL Films did a documentary based on the 2017 Dallas Cowboys season entitled All or Nothing. What should it be renamed?
3: Nothing. <laughs> Nothing to see here.
1: The the game. <laughs> We'd like to thank Dan Fouts, Devin McCordy, Shereen Williams, and John Turney for joining us. Robert Harris Jr. for producing us, and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website, talkofamenetwork.com, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week at this time and on this station. We'll be here. We hope you will be too.